Section 13 of Volume 1D of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1D, Section 13, Chapter 39, Part 7. Mary's commissioners, before they gave in their complaint against her enemies in Scotland, entered a protest that their appearance in the cause should no wise affect the independence of her crown, or be construed as a mark of subordination to England. The English commissioners received this protest, but with a reserve to the claim of England. The complaint of that princess was next read, and contained a detail of the injuries which she had suffered since her marriage with bothwell that her subjects had taken arms against her on pretence of freeing her from captivity that when she put herself into their hands they had committed her to close custody in lochlevin had placed her son an infant on her throne had again taken arms against her after her deliverance from prison had rejected all her proposals for accommodation, had given battle to her troops, and had obliged her for the safety of her person to take shelter in England. The Earl of Murray, in answer to this complaint, gave a summary and imperfect account of the late transactions, that the Earl of Bothwell, the known murderer of the late king, had, a little after committing that crime seized the person of the queen and led her to dunbar that he acquired such influence over her as to gain her consent to marry him and he had accordingly procured a divorce from his former wife and had pretended to celebrate his nuptials with the queen that the scandal of this transaction the dishonour which it brought on the nation the danger to which the infant prince was exposed from the attempts of that audacious man had obliged the nobility to take arms and oppose his criminal enterprises that after mary in order to save him had thrown herself into their hands she still discovered such a violent attachment to him that they found it necessary for their own and the public safety to confine her person during a season till bothwell and the other murderers of her husband could be tried and punished for their crimes and that during this confinement she had voluntarily without compulsion or violence merely from disgust at the inquietude and vexations attending power resigned her crown to her only son and had appointed the earl of murray regent during the minority the queen's answer to this apology was obvious that she did not know and never could suspect that boswell who had been acquitted by a jury and recommended to her by all the nobility for her husband was the murderer of the king that she ever was and still continues desirous that if he be guilty he may be brought to condign punishment that her resignation of the crown was extorted from her by the well-grounded fears of her life and even by direct menaces of violence and that throgmorton the english ambassador 
as well as others of her friends, had advised her to sign that paper as the only means of saving herself from the last extremity, and had assured her that a consent given under these circumstances could never have any validity. So far the Queen of Scots seemed plainly to have the advantage in the contest, and the English commissioners might have been surprised that Murray had made so weak a defence, and had suppressed all the material imputations against that princess, on which his party had ever so strenuously insisted, had not some private conferences previously informed them of the secret. Mary's commissioners had boasted that Elizabeth, from regard to her kinswoman, and from her desire of maintaining the rights of sovereigns, was determined, how criminal soever the conduct of that princess might appear, to restore her to the throne, and Murray, reflecting on some past measures of the English court, began to apprehend that there were but two just grounds for these expectations. He believed that Mary, if he would agree to conceal the most violent part of the accusation against her, would submit to any reasonable terms of accommodation. But if he once proceeded so far as to charge her with the whole of her guilt, no composition could afterwards take place, and should she ever be restored, either by the power of Elizabeth or the assistance of her other friends, he and his party must be exposed to her severe and implacable vengeance. He resolved, therefore, not to venture rashly on a measure which it would be impossible for him ever to recall and he privately paid a visit to Norfolk and the other English commissioners, confessed his scruples, laid before them the evidence of the Queen's guilt, and desired to have some security for Elizabeth's protection, in case that evidence should, upon examination, appear entirely satisfactory. Norfolk was not secretly displeased with these scruples of the regent. He had ever been a partisan of the Queen of Scots, Secretary Liddington, who began also to incline to that party, and was a man of singular address and capacity, had engaged him to embrace further views in her favour, and even to think of espousing her, and though that duke confessed that the proofs against Mary seemed to him unquestionable, he encouraged Murray in his present resolution not to produce them publicly in the conferences before the English commissioners. Norfolk, however, was obliged to transmit to court the queries proposed by the regent. These queries consisted of four particulars. Whether the English commissioners had authority from their sovereign to pronounce sentence against Mary, in case her guilt should be fully proved before them. Whether they would promise to exercise that authority and proceed to an actual sentence. Whether the Queen of Scots, if she were found guilty, should be delivered into the hands of the regent or at least be so secured in England, that she should never be able to disturb the tranquillity of Scotland. And, whether Elizabeth would also, in that case, promise to acknowledge the young king, and protect the regent in his authority. Elizabeth, when these queries with the other transactions were laid before her, began to think that they pointed towards a conclusion more decisive and more advantageous than she had hitherto expected, 
she determined therefore to bring the matter into full light and under pretext that the distance from her person retarded the proceedings of her commissioners she ordered them to come to london and there continue the conferences on their appearance she immediately joined in commission with them some of the most considerable of her council sir nicholas bacon lord keeper the earls of arundel and leicester lord clinton admiral and sir william cecil secretary the queen of scots who knew nothing of these secret motives and who expected that fear or decency would still restrain murray from proceeding to any violent accusation against her expressed an entire satisfaction in this adjournment and declared that the affair being under the immediate inspection of elizabeth was now in the hands where she most desired to rest it the conferences were accordingly continued at hampton court and mary's commissioners as before made no scruple to be present at them the queen meanwhile gave a satisfactory answer to all murray's demands and declared that though she wished and hoped from the present inquiry to be entirely convinced of mary's innocence yet if the event should prove contrary and if that princess should appear guilty of her husband's murder she should for her own part deem her ever after unworthy of a throne the regent encouraged by this declaration opened more fully his charge against the queen of scots and after expressing his reluctance to proceed to that extremity and protesting that nothing but the necessity of self-defence which must not be abandoned for any delicacy could have engaged him in such a measure he proceeded to accuse her in plain terms of participation and consent in the assassination of the king the earl of lennox too appeared before the english commissioners and imploring vengeance for the murder of his son accused mary as an accomplice with bothwell in that enormity when this charge was so unexpectedly given in and copies of it were transmitted to the bishop of ross lord herries and the other commissioners of mary they absolutely refused to return an answer and they grounded their silence on very extraordinary reasons they had orders they said from their mistress if anything were advanced that might touch her honour not to make any defence as she was a sovereign princess and could not be subject to any tribunal and they required that she should previously be admitted to elizabeth's presence to whom and to whom alone she was determined to justify her innocence they forgot that the conferences were at first begun and were still continued with no other view than to clear her from the accusations of her enemies that elizabeth had ever pretended to enter into them only as her friend by her own consent and approbation not as assuming any jurisdiction over her that this princess had from the beginning refused to admit her to her presence till she should vindicate herself from the crimes imputed to her that she had therefore discovered no new signs of partiality by her perseverance in that resolution and that though she had granted an audience to the earl of murray and his colleagues she had previously conferred the same honour on mary's commissioners and her conduct was so far entirely equal to both parties 
as the commissioners of the queen of scots refused to give in any answer to murray's charge the necessary consequence seemed to be that there could be no further proceedings in the conference but though this silence might be interpreted as a presumption against her it did not fully answer the purpose of those english ministers who were enemies to that princess they still desired to have in their hands the proofs of her guilt and in order to draw them with decency from the regent a judicious artifice was employed by elizabeth murray was called before the english commissioners and reproved by them in the queen's name for the atrocious imputations which he had the temerity to throw upon his sovereign but though the earl of murray they added and the other commissioners had so far forgotten the duty of allegiance to their prince the queen never would overlook what she owed to her friend her neighbour and her kinswoman and she therefore desired to know what they could say in their own justification murray thus urged made no difficulty in producing the proofs of his charge against the queen of scots and among the rest some love-letters and sonnets of hers to bothwell written all in her own hand and two other papers one written in her own hand another subscribed by her and written by the earl of huntley each of which contained a promise of marriage with bothwell made before the pretended trial and acquittal of that nobleman all these important papers had been kept by bothwell in a silver box or casket which had been given him by mary and which had belonged to her first husband francis and though the princess had enjoined him to burn the letters as soon as he had read them he had thought proper carefully to preserve them as pledges of her fidelity and had committed them to the custody of sir james balfour deputy governor of the castle of edinburgh when that fortress was besieged by the associated lords bothwell sent a servant to receive the casket from the hands of the deputy governor balfour delivered it to the messenger but as he had at that time received some disgust from bothwell and was secretly negotiating an agreement with the ruling party he took care by conveying private intelligence to the earl of morton to make the papers be intercepted by him they contained incontestable proofs of mary's criminal correspondence with bothwell of her consent to the king's murder and of her concurrence in the violence which bothwell pretended to commit upon her murray fortified this evidence by some testimonies of corresponding facts and he added some time after the dying confession of one hubert or french paris as he was called a servant of bothwell's who had been executed for the king's murder and who directly charged the queen with her being an accessory to that criminal enterprise mary's commissioners had used every expedient to ward this blow which they saw coming upon them and against which it appears they were not provided with any proper defence as soon as murray opened his charge they endeavoured to turn the conferences from an inquiry into a negotiation and though informed by the english commissioners that nothing could be more dishonourable for their mistress than to enter into a treaty with such undutiful subjects before she had justified herself from these enormous imputations which had been thrown upon her they still insisted that elizabeth should settle terms of accommodation between mary 
and her enemies in scotland they maintained that till their mistress had given in her answer to murray's charge his proofs could neither be called for nor produced and finding that the english commissioners were still determined to proceed in the method which had been projected they finally broke off the conferences and never would make any reply these papers at least translations of them have since been published the objections made to their authenticity are in general of small force but were they ever so specious they cannot now be hearkened to since mary at the time when the truth could have been fully cleared did in effect ratify the evidence against her by recoiling from the inquiry at the very critical moment and refusing to give an answer to the accusation of her enemies but elizabeth though she had seen enough for her own satisfaction was determined that the most eminent persons of her court should also be acquainted with these transactions and should be convinced of the equity of her proceedings she ordered her privy council to be assembled and that she might render the matter more solemn and authentic she summoned along with them the earls of northumberland westmoreland shrewsbury worcester huntingdon and warwick all the proceedings of the english commissioners were read to them the evidences produced by murray were perused a great number of letters written by mary to elizabeth were laid before them and the handwriting compared with that of the letters delivered in by the regent the refusal of the queen of scots commissioners to make any reply was related and on the whole elizabeth told them that as she had from the first thought it improper that mary after such horrid crimes were imputed to her should be admitted to her presence before she had in some measure justified herself from the charge so now when her guilt was confirmed by so many evidences and all answer refused she must for her part persevere more steadily in that resolution elizabeth next called in the queen of scots commissioners and after observing that she deemed it more decent for their mistress to continue the conferences than to require the liberty of justifying herself in person she told them that mary might either send her reply by a person whom she trusted or deliver it herself to some english nobleman whom elizabeth should appoint to wait upon her but as to her resolution of making no reply at all she must regard it as the strongest confession of guilt nor could they ever be deemed her friends who advised her to that method of proceeding these topics she enforced still more strongly in a letter which she wrote to mary herself the queen of scots had no other subterfuge from these pressing remonstrances than still to demand a personal interview with elizabeth a concession which she was sensible would never be granted because elizabeth knew that this expedient could decide nothing because it brought matters to extremity which that princess desired to avoid and because it had been refused from the beginning even before the commencement of the conferences in order to keep herself better in countenance mary thought of another device though the conferences were broken off she ordered her commissioners to accuse the earl of murray and his associates as the murderers of the king but this accusation coming so late 
being extorted merely by a complaint of Murray's, and being unsupported by any proof, could only be regarded as an angry recrimination upon her enemy. She also desired to have copies of the papers given in by the regent, but as she still persisted in her resolution to make no reply before the English commissioners, this demand was finally refused her. As Mary had thus put an end to the conferences, the region expressed great impatience to return into Scotland, and he complained that his enemies had taken advantage of his absence, and had thrown the whole government into confusion. Elizabeth therefore dismissed him, and granted him a loan of five thousand pounds, to bear the charges of his journey. During the conferences at York, the Duke of Chatelrault arrived at London in passing from France, and as the Queen knew that he was engaged in Mary's party, and had very plausible pretensions to the regency of the King of Scots, she thought proper to detain him till after Murray's departure. But notwithstanding these marks of favour, and some other assistance which she secretly gave this latter nobleman, she still declined acknowledging the young king, or treating with Murray as regent of Scotland. Orders were given for removing the Queen of Scots from Bolton, a place surrounded with Catholics, to Tutbury in the county of Stafford, where she was put under the custody of the Earl of Shrewsbury. Elizabeth entertained hopes that this princess, discouraged by her misfortunes, and confounded by the late transactions, would be glad to secure a safe retreat from all the tempests with which she had been agitated, and she promised to bury everything in oblivion, provided Mary would agree, either voluntary to resign her crown, or to associate her son with her in the government, and the administration to remain, during his minority, in the hands of the Earl of Murray. But that high-spirited princess refused all treaty upon such terms, and declared that her last words should be those of a Queen of Scotland. Besides many other reasons, she said, which fixed her in that resolution, she knew that if in the present emergence she made such concessions, her submission would be universally deemed as an acknowledgment of guilt, and would ratify all the calumnies of her enemies. Mary still insisted upon this alternative, either that Elizabeth should assist her in recovering her authority, or should give her liberty to retire into France, and make trial of the friendship of other princes. And as she asserted that she had come voluntarily into England, invited by many former professions of amity, she thought that one or other of these requests could not, without the most extreme injustice, be refused her. But Elizabeth, sensible of the danger which attended both these proposals, was secretly resolved to detain her still a captive, and as her retreat into England had been little voluntary, her claim upon the Queen's generosity appeared much less urgent than she was willing to pretend. Necessity, it was thought, would to the prudent justify her detention. Her past misconduct would apologize for it to the equitable, and though it was foreseen that compassion for Mary's situation, joined to her intrigues and insinuating behavior, would, 
while she remained in england excite the zeal of her friends especially of the catholics these inconveniences were deemed much inferior to those which attended any other expedient elizabeth trusted also to her own address for eluding all these difficulties she purposed to avoid breaking absolutely with the queen of scots to keep her always in hopes of an accommodation to negotiate perpetually with her and still to throw the blame of not coming to any conclusion either on unforeseen accidents or on the obstinacy and perversity of others we come now to mention some english affairs which we left behind us that we might not interrupt our narrative of the events in scotland which formed so material a part of the present reign the term fixed by the treaty of chateau cambrasis for the restitution of calais expired in fifteen sixty seven and elizabeth after making her demand at the gates of that city sent sir thomas smith to paris and that minister in conjunction with sir henry norris her resident ambassador enforced her pretensions conferences were held on that head without coming to any conclusion satisfactory to the english the chancellor de l'hospital told the english ambassadors that though france by an article of the treaty was obliged to restore calais on the expiration of eight years there was another article of the same treaty which now deprived elizabeth of any right that could accrue to her by that engagement that it was agreed if the english should during the interval commit hostilities upon france they should instantly forfeit all claim to calais and the taking possession of havre and dieppe with whatever pretences that measure might be covered was a plain violation of the peace between the nations that though these places were not entered by force but put into elizabeth's hands by the governors these governors were rebels and a correspondence with such traitors was the most flagrant injury that could be committed on any sovereign that in the treaty which ensued upon the expulsion of the english from normandy the french ministers had absolutely refused to make any mention of calais and had thereby declared their intention to take advantage of the title which had accrued to the crown of france and that though a general clause had been inserted implying a reservation of all claims this concession could not avail the english who at that time possessed no just claim to calais and had previously forfeited all right to that fortress the queen was nowise surprised at hearing these allegations and as soon as she knew that the french court intended not from the first to make restitution much less after they could justify their refusal by such plausible reasons she thought it better for the present to acquiesce in the loss than to pursue a doubtful title by a war both dangerous and expensive as well as unseasonable elizabeth entered anew into negotiations for espousing the archduke charles and she seems at this time to have had no great motive of policy which might induce her to make this fallacious offer but as she was very rigorous in the terms insisted on and would not agree that the archduke if he espoused her should enjoy any power or title in england and even refused him the exercise of his religion the treaty came to nothing and that prince despairing of success in his addresses 
married the daughter of Albert, Duke of Bavaria. End of section 13, chapter 39, part 7.